If you haven't come across Lauren Daigle, she's got a uh, amazing gifts to be able to convey deep truths in a way which just resonates so powerfully. We've been uh, exploring now for a number of months the theme of God's mission plan as it runs from uh, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, summarised in that phrase, shalom in the sanctuary of God. We're not pausing that through Holy Week and Easter. We're highlighting it because this is where it all comes together in an incredibly profound and um, life-changing way. Shalom is actually what... Holy Week is all about and certainly what Palm Sunday is all about. I want to focus today in particular on Jesus as the ultimate peacemaker or even more profoundly as we've worked through that the the language of, of shalom is peace but it is so much more than peace. It is the whole Uh, life-giving pathway that restores and replenishes and brings vitality. And Jesus is, in that sense, the ultimate shalom maker. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem needs to be understood against that wider backdrop of God's purposes. So yes, it tells us something about Jesus' humility, about his meekness although interestingly the word meek is actually not what we tend to hear there's no satisfactory English translation for the word the word meek was actually used of rulers of kings who are the opposite of a tyrant so it is the the stark contrast of those who have power and authority and can make decisions who choose to use that for the well-being of others, not for themselves. That was used of a meek king in the ancient world, in contrast, as I say, to tyrants in particular. Let me just get uh, started in an unusual place, but it was in my mind as it happened to be. We've got a meeting this afternoon. It's called an annual vestry meeting, hoping that the actual formal part of the meeting will take about 20 minutes, no more than half an hour. I can just but hope. Um, And then we'll go into a planning stage as we work through some possibilities of how might we give expression to what we believe God is calling us to do at this time. And I have been part of planning days and strategy meetings and vision days and things all too many times. And I know know the beauty of crafting these lovely statements that end up in a nice file somewhere. If a planning time is to have any uh, traction to it, any productivity, there are actually four main questions you need to answer. I can only find three on this particular graphic, but I've got three out of the four, which is not bad. We need to ask what. What has been proposed? So it's good to talk about what what are we about? What is the, the focus of our discussion, our proposal? We need to ask the question, why? Of all the things that we could busy ourselves with and do, why this? What What's the rationale? Where does it fit within our sense of the mission that we believe God has given us? The other vital question is the question of who. So just giving a little heads up to some of the ground rules for this afternoon's and some of the small group discussions around tables. The who can only be answered in terms of people who are at that table. There's no space for saying we've got this terrific idea. We think that should be doing that and that person and that person and others should be doing it. That one's not going to happen. 
it's when that group is saying, we think this is a terrific idea and we're going to put our hands up to run with it as well. So those are key questions. The what, the why, the who. And the fourth question, which I couldn't find, but it's an important one, is when. Because sometimes you can have a terrific idea, a good idea, but it's just not the right time for it. The reason I mention those is because they're pretty good questions to ask to make sense of why Palm Sunday is such a profound day. It commences Holy Week, but why? The what of Palm Sunday is the kingdom of God. What is happening is the king is entering the city of God to assume that kingship. And all the promises for centuries beforehand that we're talking about the promise that the, uh, the fullness of the kingdom will not only be restored but will grow into a life that is uh, characterised by uh, productivity and fruitfulness and peace and by joy and by celebration and all that is good and right. All those prophecies that the, the prophets sketched out, this is the moment when it all occurs. This is the what is happening as Jesus enters the Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is being inaugurated. Which leads to the question of why? Why is this happening? And then it's got a simple but such a profound answer. Why? Because God loves the world so much that he sent his son not only into this world but on the pathway with the mission that Jesus uniquely did. So the why is a profound question, which lends us to the who. Who is this? And why is the, this mission through Jesus so vital to God's mission plan that everything of God's mission depends on the events that Jesus was tasked to come and to be obedient to as well? For the when... Well, the when is flagged by one word that Jesus has been refusing to use until this stage. And the word is now. Up until then, people were saying, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And Jesus would talk about some future time, some future moment. Now in the gospel narratives, Jesus starts saying, now is the time. Now the kingdom of God is upon us. Now these events are unfolding and once they start from this moment they will have a pathway that must be followed as a result. Jesus interrupted his journey towards Caesarea Philippi up to the north of, of uh, Jerusalem, changed his direction, started his journey towards Jerusalem and the work that lay here and now it's all about to start. But another backdrop is also important. That is to say that the work that God had promised, last week we talked about the God's pledge to creation and to Noah and for all who would follow Noah, that he would do this work of that which is redemptive, entering into the messiness and the darkness of the world as it's experienced. Sometimes we're responsible, sometimes we are... Uh, victims, sometimes we are just caught up in the events that are flowing around us. The work of mission of God that is redemptive and restorative and recreative and transformative that God promised right back into Noah's time 
are now going to be realised in a way that is beyond our comprehension through the events that Jesus is about to do in Jerusalem and all that followed on from that. One other background, though, is also very significant, is that the language of being the Son of God and the one who brings peace is not unique to the gospel traditions. In fact, they were barely heard at the time because this was the boast, this was the the grand state-wide or empire-wide narrative that the emperor alone uh, could claim. This is a bust of uh, Tiberius, the son of Augustus. Augustus was so successful that he was deified, he was made God. So Tiberius uniquely could claim the title, the son of the deified. That is to say, the son of God. That was one of his official titles. The other title he bore was the one who brings peace. Because the Roman world had their peace. And in essence, it was a genuine peace. They'd actually had a century of civil war that had been bloody. And it had a whole series of generals and armies and insurrections and betrayals and the the killing of Julius Caesar lasted a century until Octavian won his battles and introduced the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was a big part of their, uh, we would describe as their narrative these days, but way in which they said, this is why Romans are so good for you. We are the ones who have brought peace to the world at the time. So we have two different pathways to peace that are in contrast, two different types of kingship that are set alongside each other in our Palm Sunday narrative. The peace of Rome was brought by martial rule, martial law. It came at the end of a javelin for those who were in the cavalry. It came through the auxiliary troops and their capacity to be efficient and effective when it comes to military rule. We would say in modern times it came at the end of a gun. In ancient times it came at the end of a sword. That was the peace of Rome. That was held out as the promise. They actually had celebrations around it. They had festivals to celebrate it. So alongside that model, which was brought in by military victory, we have the example of Jesus. A very different type of peace but one which brought a far more profound change, that work of redemption and of restoration and of recreation and a transformation, the Roman world was never able to do. (laughs) They operated by fear and terror. Yet it was through the work of Jesus and those who followed him that a whole different quality of peace was established. So let me just trace it. This is an appetizer. In weeks to come, we're going to be exploring this in a bit more detail and I'm going to go into the furnishings and the colour schemes, the fabrics that are in the tabernacle. But I want to give you a foretaste because this is important to understand what's going on on Palm Sunday. You might recall once uh, the people gathered at Mount Sinai and then they had a period wandering through the desert before they made their way into the Promised Land. God's presence went with them 
symbolically in the form of the tabernacle. It was a tent, it was rolled up, it could be moved around. But the design, the fabric and the, the shape of it was shaped around a statement of a journey, a movement from that which is far off, drawn into a space that's showing some health and some flourishing, and then into a holy space. So around the, the tabernacle, all the language is there, but it describes a movement from that which is unclean towards that which is clean. That which is clean is then set aside as that which is holy. At the very centre of it is the holy place, and at the centre of that is the holy of holies. That symbolises the Garden of Eden. It symbolises what it means to be in God's presence. Was it the reality? Well, yes, God was present in and through the tabernacle. But as the letter of Hebrews says, that was only a shadow of the heavenly reality of what it means to be in the presence of God. And the thing is this, you couldn't just stroll there. You couldn't just buy your season ticket and get through the entry gates and walk in. There's a whole process that was needed to be drawn into that space. And the Passover was a part of that process, or at least the the Day of Atonement was part of that process. So when the pilgrims began to travel, they were journeying towards that symbolic centre. That's the background, more about that in coming weeks. When it came to the temple, either the temple was Solomon, which was destroyed, or the second temple in the time of Jesus, it looked something like that. Far more... uh, large in its dimensions and solid in its structure, but the the floor plan is exactly the same. The symbolic shape of it is exactly the same. And at the centre of that is what we would call the inner sanctum, the inner holy place. You couldn't go through those walls unless you were a priest, and the priest had to be elaborately cleansed before they could do so. You couldn't go into the most holy place unless you were the high priest. And after you had been through a moment of uh, atonement before God where all was made right, you could be at one with God. That movement is actually where we follow on Holy Week. We get drawn closer and closer into that space through the death and the sacrifice of Jesus into that dramatic moment in Matthew's Gospel describes at the point of Jesus' death what happens is that the curtain that, that separates off the holy place is, is torn apart. There is now no barrier between those who are seeking God being able to be drawn into that space as well. The pilgrims who are travelling with Jesus towards uh, Jerusalem knew exactly that. So in their journey... They would be singing the psalms, like the psalm that we had, or a portion of the psalm, 118, the psalms of ascent. As they climb up in towards Jerusalem, up the, uh, towards the city of God, and the crown, the centre of that city, is the, the temple, is the dwelling place, is the most holy place. They had a sense of being drawn towards God and the kingdom of God and the presence of God in that process. And Jesus took his place alongside those pilgrims as they flocked in. And it's like the start of a holiday. There's an excitement. There's joy. There would have been questions from children saying, are we there yet? And the parents saying, see that big building on top of the hill there? We're almost there. 
a great sense of joy. The population of Jerusalem increased tenfold over that period. It was packed in, and people were preparing for the Passover suppers that would be a gathering point of a whole series of celebrations and festivals with that. It's against that backdrop that Jesus enters and is recognised as someone exceptional. And he does so in a way that highlights that he's fulfilling the prophecies. He doesn't come as a Roman king would do, a Roman emperor on a military horse, surrounded by an elite troop of of, uh, the equivalent of the SAS. He comes of a motley group as he makes his entry, but it is a highly symbolic entry. For his kingship, his kingdom was of a whole other order and has changed the world unlike any others. The name Jerusalem actually means a foundation or a city of shalom. With uh, Hebrew, you look at the consonants, SLM, you might recognize the same sense of uh, shalom. It is the city of peace, the city of shalom that Jesus is entering, God's holy city. Jesus comes and is acclaimed as the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. Or as I want to highlight this morning, Jesus comes as the ultimate shalom maker. Not just bringing, not coming of an army, but bringing with him a touch of heaven and all that is good and life-giving. Those images that we had through that clip beforehand of lives being changed is just a, a foretaste of what is to come. Do you know why they stopped having the gladiators and the, all the brutality and the violence between those moments? It was the movement of the church that actually outshone it. And why things like uh, social services and the beginnings of education and a care for, for communities and others, it all came from those who followed the way of Jesus as they were also shalom makers. That changed the Roman Empire. It changed the world. And it has changed our world. It is through those who are following the way of Jesus as shalom makers, as peacemakers, is why slavery fell away. And it is why a sense of what is good and honourable around the creation of things like universities, it came from people who followed Jesus. And so many areas have actually contributed under the radar. Jesus launched an army, not of military rulers or terrorists, but an army of peacemakers. Which leads me to some reflections of how this continues to speak to us today. Because the way of the Roman Empire is not just a thing of the past. It is the way of the world today and the challenges and the horrors that not only unsettle us, that we need to engage with. Isn't it extraordinary that Vladimir Putin justified his invasion of Ukraine by describing his troops as peacemakers? I think he must have been reading Caesar's operational manual (laughs) of how to try and justify peacemakers coming in through it all. Still maintaining that narrative as well. The planet does not need more successful people. This quote really struck me last night. The planet desperately needs more peacemakers. 
Is that not so true? People who say, no, this is not the way. There is a better way, a way that would actually change and transform and restore and redeem. You won't get that through armies or for the imposition of power. So this speaks to me this week as I hold my palm cross before me this week and remind myself as a follower of Christ and the realities that we're called to be, that I'm called to be a peacemaker. You, if I can get away with it, use are peacemakers. We are peacemakers. Because it isn't just for those who head states and those who have positions of and responsibilities of, of our government and all those different issues. We know those are vitally important. We need to pray for the processes and that good people are raised up in that space. But it's also us. Within our homes, within our neighbourhoods, are we known to be peacemakers, to be safe people, life-giving people? And it doesn't take a great stretch of the imagination for us at St Matthew's to recognise work to be done for us as a church community. The calling for us to be known, St Matthew's, that is a peaceful place. That is a place of shalom, a place where you can flourish, a place of safety. Let us hear that calling this Holy Week, that God would work in us in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, that we will truly be a community, a people, a church of peacemakers. Amen.